right. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter uh, 2 today uh, with a letter to the church at Thyatira. And I want to say uh, this. I want to ask, you know, why are we so, why are we so enamored with celebrities? Why are we so like drawn to their lives? We're drawn to actors and musicians and, and athletes. athletes. And, and the reality is they're broken people just like you and I are, only they just have more money. They have more fame or recognition. They happen to be good at one particular thing that they've been able to monetize and has helped them become famous but they're just as messed up as everyone else, and they often prove that really publicly, how messed up they are, don't they? Celebrities just have a way. And as ridiculous as it sounds, especially as ridiculous as it sounds to the Christian's ear, there are even celebrity pastors, celebrity preachers. But that's so oxymoronic, isn't it? Celebrity preacher? Well, it's either oxymoronic or it's just moronic. It's one of those two things. Not to mention their followers who, who make them into celebrities and who feed the Christian celebrity delusion. There is only one celebrity. Amen? There is only one celebrity. There is only one worth celebrating. One who is awesome and glorious and should inspire in each of us passion and purity for him. One, one celebrity, one who has eyes like a flame of fire, one who has feet like burnished bronze. And that one, that preeminent celebrity above all, has written a letter to the church in Thyatira, a letter that is of relevance to us today. And so let me read that. It's Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pot, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star 
And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> well, in this letter, we see that Jesus is awesome and glorious. This is on the screen. It's in your notes. Jesus is awesome and glorious. And so we must be passionate and pure about several things. First of all, we must be passionate and pure about our own good works. Now, let me suggest that the best motivation for any good works that we do as Christians, the best motivation is not so much gratitude. It's not so much that Miss Jeannie or Dwayne has asked us to do these things. So it's not a guilt trip. It's not obligational. This is what I should do because I'm a Christian. The best motivation for any works that we do should be this description of Jesus in verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God. He's the one commending our works. These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Those two descriptions in particular, which, were, which are really a repeat of, of the fuller description of Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation, these two are of particular note to the people living in Thyatira. They impact, they would have taken notice of these two descriptions in particular. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus, however you normally would picture Jesus, but he has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, I want you to think of the kind of words that you're going to use to describe Jesus on the basis of his eyes being like a flame of fire. The first word that comes to mind is terrifying. Anybody else think of that? Like, that's terrifying. I also thought about penetrating. As if Jesus with eyes like flame of fire is going to penetrate right into my soul. Like he's looking past any celebrity facade I might have on. And he's looking right into my soul. He knows my very thoughts. I think about the sense of power he has when I think about his eyes like a flame of fire. The authority that he has. I think about the word unchallengeable. Who could stand before him? One commentator, Fanning, said, said this, this description of Jesus describes, in fact, divine indignation. He's mad about something. <clears throat> He's not pleased with what he sees, and therefore, here's another word, judgment is looming. How could you not think about judgment when you see Jesus with eyes like a flame of fire? But he also has these feet that are like burnished bronze pointing to his purity. This is an allusion out of Daniel chapter 10, the prophecy there pointing to his purity, his holiness, his beauty. And this in fact is the source of the divine indignation. It's that he is pure and holy and we are not. Yet as awesome and terrible as he is, the first thing he starts with with this church is to commend them. I know your works, he says. My eyes have looked at you and what I've seen is the passion and purity of your works. I know your works. And, and he describes what their works are like. Here's the character of the works of the church in Thyatira. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. 
They were motivated by love. They demonstrated love to one another. They were faithful and and faith-filled in the exercising of their gifts. They served one another and they had patient endurance. They were just able to put up with so much. And I think about these four descriptors and that's everything I would want a church to be. That's everything I would want this church to be. And Jesus goes on to say, and he emphasizes that their latter works, what they were doing right now was better than their former works. It was exceeding their former works. In other words, very simply, they were growing in their service to God and to others. They weren't stagnant. Listen, when you read this letter, you can't help but think about the very first letter where the Ephesian church was challenged because they had lost the love they had at first. Their love was not growing. Their works were not growing. But in Thessala, in, in, here in Thyatira, their, their works were growing. And I would want that for our church. I, I would want for us that in year 21, where we are right now, that in year 21, our works are better than what they were in the first 20 years. That at year 22 and year 23 and year 24, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, that we're always increasing in these things, in love and faith and service and patient endurance and how we work for him. I want our latter works to exceed the things we did at first. I want this for our church to be growing in our evidence in the evidence of our faith in Christ. And each of us as believers, not just thinking of of the entire church, but as individual believers, we have to be passionate about what we do for Christ. We have to be pure in our motives. Part of our definition here at Harvest for a disciple, the four W's, part of that is that we work for Christ. Each believer having Christ, each believer having the indwelling Holy Spirit, each believer being empowered by that same Spirit, the Spirit manifesting Himself through us, through our gifts and abilities. Using those gifts to serve Him, to serve others for the purpose, Ephesians 4 says, of building up the body to bring it to the point of maturity. And I was thinking, like, it doesn't matter much what you do, but you ought to be serving in some way. It doesn't much matter what you do, just that you're doing something. And that you're doing, what you're doing demonstrates genuine passion for the Lord, passion for his mission. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he's the one you're serving. He's the one to whom you're going to have to give an account. You're going to stand before him one day. I'm going to stand before the Lord one day. My name's going to get called. Now I'm a believer. I'm saved. This is the judgment of our works, what we've done and have not done for the Lord as Christians. And I'm going to stand and give an account to him on that day for what I have done and what I have not done that I should have done. It's going to be my name that I give an account for. You're you're all going to be in line too. Your name and number are going to get called. And you're going to stand before the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. And you're not going to be able to put up any facade. You'll see right through it. And you'll give an account. 
for what you've done and what you haven't done. I'm on my own, and you're on your own on that day. Our good works are not, this is so important to say, our good works are not in any way earning our salvation, but our good works prove the validity of our faith. They give evidence to it. And they demonstrate that we're serious, taking God's kingdom seriously. I hope that's you. Jesus is awesome and glorious. That's his due. But notice, secondly, we must be also resisting the world's influences. Now, very similar to what we read in the last letter to Pergamum, this church was allowing a false prophet to operate in their midst. And in fact, um, what was going on in Ephesus, which they had dealt with very effectively, was this error of the Nicolaitans. In Pergamum, they were not dealing with it effectively at all, but were actually allowing the doctrine of the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans to, to uh, be spread in their church, and it was influencing the church. And now in Thyatira, it's the same thing. It's not, not that it was named particularly, but it's exactly the same issue. They were allowing this false prophet, prophetess, to operate in their midst. Jesus says, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. That's not her real name. This is a stand-in name. It's an allusion back to the Old Testament, the book of First and Second Kings. It's a reference to the, of, to the wife of King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, his wife Jezebel was a Phoenician, non-Jewish. He had married her, and she brought her worship of Baal to Israel. Now, uh, Ahab and Jezebel were the consummate celebrity power couple of their time, uh, quite notoriously so. And so what happened was with this couple coming together and Jezebel being a force within the marriage, she brought her worship in. And the notion was Israel can still be for Yahweh, can still worship God, but let's add in Baal worship. We can do both of these things. And this hybrid form of worship took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this woman, this woman who's in the church in Thyatira, promoting her doctrine, her teaching. This is really calling her Jezebel. Jesus calling her Jezebel is really to point out the severity of her offenses. She's that evil. Now, she's in the church. If we were the church in Thyatira and we were reading this letter, she'd be sitting right there. Well, not necessarily right there. <laughs> right there among you somewhere. She'd be right there in the church. So Jesus is pointing out the severity of her offenses. She's that evil. She's as evil as Jezebel. She called herself a prophetess. Nothing wrong, by the way, with being a prophetess. It's a legit gift given by God. You can read the gift of prophecy given in uh, the list in Romans 12, verse 6. In Acts 21, in fact, Philip is mentioned. He had four daughters, and all of his daughters had the gift of prophecy. They were prophetesses, and they ministered the gospel. In fact, the gift of prophecy 
uh, just so we understand what this is, because we very often just immediately think about the future and, and predictions of the future with prophecy, but the gift of prophecy has far more to do with foretelling of known truths and much less to do with the foretelling of the future. Not saying it's never foretelling, but it's simply much less common. Um, most prophecy in the Bible, when you see it, is what we would call preaching or proclamation. And so in a very real way, what I'm doing right now, this is a prophetic ministry. I'm proclaiming known truths of God's word. Now, especially in the early days of the church, the gift of prophecy was important because there was no written New Testament. They didn't have the advantage of having uh, the New Testament in front of them. Uh, so the gift of prophecy was critical as the Spirit moved certain individuals, both men and women, to accurately spread the gospel. That's, that's the biblical gift of prophecy. But in this case, in Thyatira, this self-proclaimed prophetess or preacher, verse 20, was teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Uh, that's a stand-in for a spiritual adultery. It's a betrayal of God. It's not necessarily just sexual sin. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so very similar, if you were here for last, the last message, very similar to what was going on in Pergamum. Believers in Thyatira were having trouble navigating society, navigating the marketplace without also engaging in business lunches, if I can call them that, business lunches that would take place in temples and were connected to idol worship. Now, Thyatira is a city of the seven cities in Asia Minor that receive letters um, or letters are written to. Thyatira is like the, the most minor, um, least prominent of the seven cities, but it was a center for commerce. In fact, three main industries existed in the city of Thyatira. One of them was uh, fabric and the dyeing of fabrics. And so if you remember the name Lydia from the book of Acts, uh, Lydia was from Thyatira and they were known for taking fabrics, beautiful fabrics, dyeing them, all these wonderful colors. Purple was the uh, most prominent and, and they would be sold and, and exported to various places around the Roman Empire. They were also big into shoemaking. Lots of shoes were made in Thyatira and those were shipped out um, and exported elsewhere. And then curiously, because of the description we have, uh, it was also uh, the third big industry was bronze making. It was metallurgy around bronze and, and they would supply mostly um, the military, and there was a garrison even in Thyatira that took advantage of that sector of the economy. And there were guilds, trade guilds, for each of these industries. And if you wanted to sell or be a part or manufacture anything within that sector, you needed to be part of one of these guilds. Now, remember, in the ancient world, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, all of this is intertwined. And so if you want to get food out, if you, if you want to trade in the marketplace, if you want to hang out with your friends and have a social life, all of that, trade, social, meals, all revolved around the temples, all of the pagan temples that were in all of these uh, cities. So everything is intertwined together. And that makes it very challenging for Christians as they now have an allegiance to Jesus Christ exclusively to now navigate their way through the marketplace, through their relationships, just buying food. If it's all attached to pagan worship at the temple. 
Now, this is a really common issue that's dealt with throughout the New Testament. In fact, if you're taking notes, jot down this reference, Romans chapter 14. You're going to want to read Romans 14 uh, as you chase down this issue a little bit more. But there were some Christians who were able to have the meals with merchants, be part of the trade guild, do business, socialize, and not engage in anything more than that. To them, it was nothing. They would, they would look at the idols in the temples and realize that that is just a hunk of stone or that is just a piece of metal and it wouldn't mean anything to them. Now, I can give you a great example from here in the city of Barrie. There's a lot of people that are like all the Christians who are all like, oh, the spirit catcher and the spirit catcher, you know, spirit catcher. All upset about the spirit catcher. I'm like, spirit catcher, it's a big piece of metal that flaps in the wind. It's exactly what the spirit catcher is. Just a piece of metal to me. Doesn't affect my Christian life. I don't feel any evil when I walk around it. It's just a big old piece of metal, something for Barry to put on its website. That's all it is. But I get this how some Christians are really exercised about that. Well, these Christians in Thyatira, they would say, you know what? I'm a Christian now. I love Jesus. That's a piece of metal. And all I want to do is buy some meat. All I want to do is have a meal with someone. All I want to do is do some business so I can sell my purple cloth. So for these Christians, it meant nothing. Other believers, and again, this is what Romans 14 is dealing with. Other believers saw those meals as complicity with the temple rituals. How could you eat that burger? That was sacrificed to an idol. Their conscience wouldn't allow them to engage. And this was also, by the way, again, if you're taking notes, jot down this reference, Acts chapter 15, because this was what the Jerusalem council dealt with in Acts 15. They got all these leaders together from the church to discuss this very issue of, is it cool if Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? We don't have time to go into this in depth because this is a whole message on its own, but this is a huge deal for us. How do we decide on matters of conscience when it doesn't seem to be super clear in the scripture whether we should do A or B? Which set of Christians are right? Is it those that say the idol is nothing and I can buy the meat and I can go there for a meal and do business? Or is it those who say we need to stay as far away from that as we possibly can because it's evil? It's a wonderful question. So I came across this uh, chart uh, this week, this flow chart. How many people like flow charts? How many people think in flowcharts? Just raise your hand right now if you think in flowcharts. Really? I would have thought it would be more than that. You probably think in flowcharts and don't know you do. Vaughn Roberts produced this helpful decision-making flowchart, and this is in your notes as well. Uh, do everything for the glory of God. That's the base. Um, and again, Romans 14, Acts 15, deal with this. So does the Bible allow it? Here's a great thing. I got something in front of me. I don't know if I can do it or not. Does the Bible allow it? No. Don't do it. Does that make sense? Everybody good so far with the flow chart? Don't do it. Okay, but does the Bible allow it? Yeah, the Bible allows it, but does my conscience allow it? Does my conscience allow it? No, then don't do it. Don't violate your own conscience. But then if you say, you know what? My conscience does allow me. I don't think this is a big deal. I think I could do this. Not a big deal for me. Then yes, I could go ahead and do it. But then I want to ask myself some further questions because then it's never quite as easy as that, is it? So then I come across these other questions and these really relate to the impact on people around me. What is the effect on other Christians? 
Is this going to hurt someone who's new in the faith? Is this going to hurt somebody who has struggled with this very issue in their life? If I eat meat sacrificed to idols and I buy at the temple, what if somebody had actually been part of the temple rituals and got saved and was no longer wanting to be a part of that at all, but I'm okay and they see me going in and, and buying my food there? I want to think about how that affects other Christians because I love them. Secondly, what is the effect on non-Christians? If someone who's an unbeliever sees me, they know I'm for the gospel, they know I'm for Jesus, and they see me going into the temple for a business meeting. How's that going to affect a non-Christian? Because the gospel is more important than my personal rights. And third, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Because spiritual health, my spiritual health is more important than my freedom. So that's going to be a helpful grid that I feel like if we download that and have that on our phone and think through that and study that through in the various passages that I've suggested here, I think that's going to be helpful to us as we navigate this, this kind of thing that's happening in Thyatira. But it actually went even further than that, beyond a matter of conscience, beyond what was permissible or not. Because the situation in Thyatira seemed clear. There was a specific incident, in fact, where this woman prophesied falsely. You can love Jesus and you can do these other things. You can fully compromise, fully throw yourself into this. And she had been doing this and Jesus dispensed grace on the situation. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. This has been going on for some time and I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality, her spiritual adultery with all of its various impacts on our lives. And so when it comes right down to it, the issue here, and this is so important for us to hear, the issue here is not a moral issue, but a theological one. It's not what we're doing, but it's what we believe. Good theology results in right living. Bad theology results in wrong living. And this woman was actively advocating for a compromised Christian life. She was saying, you can be for Jesus and you can still engage in an immoral living. And Jesus says, no, you can't. So as Christians, we need to be resisting the world's influences. We need to flee temptation. We need to lean in hard to the gospel. And, and, and notice this next, and be living in the light of God's coming judgment. Be living in the light of God's coming judgment. He is coming to judge. And as I said last week, I don't, I don't expect unbelievers. This is a letter written to a church. It's a letter written to believers. So I don't expect unbelievers to be conscious of the judgment of God that is pending on this world. I don't expect them to be concerned about it. I don't expect them to even be thinking about it. On a Sunday morning as we're making our way to fellowship with God's people or we're tuning into a live stream to hear the word of God and to worship with God's people, however we're connecting with him. Listen, there, the vast majority of people are not given this a thought at all. All they're thinking about is, I'm sleeping in, I'm gonna have a long leisurely breakfast, I might do some yard work. I have a tea time at one. 
We're going to go for a walk down by the water. I mean, this is what people outside the church are currently thinking of. None of them is waking up, you know. Oh, wow, the judgment of God. I mean, it's not even close to their radar. But we ought to be thinking about it. We ought to be thinking about the imminent judgment of God. Genuine living for Jesus believers. Now listen, we've got to sort this out. Genuine living for Jesus believers who have had their sins forgiven and their eternity secured do not have to worry about the judgment that will divide saved from unsaved. That is settled. Jesus Christ has covered that by his blood, amen? If you're a genuine believer, you got that. There is a subsequent judgment for believers of, of our righteous and unrighteous works called the judgment seat of Christ. But listen, people in the church, you did get yourself up today. You did not go golfing. You are not doing yard work. You're here. People in the church who hear the word of God, who understand what it's saying, and yet refuse to submit themselves to the authority of the one who is speaking, you should be terrified. Don't buy into the lie of Jezebel. Convincing yourself that you're good with God when in fact your heart is given over to the values of this world. Or you compromise at every turn any biblical convictions that you may have once had or said you believed. Because watch what happens here to this Jezebel prophetess and her followers. Verse 22, behold, I, Jesus says, I will throw her, Jezebel, onto a sickbed. She's going to be afflicted by God. But not just her. So also her followers. Those who commit adultery with her, verse 22 says. There are lots of kinds of adultery. Don't think just sexual here. Ways, so many ways that we're unfaithful to God. Every one of them legitimately can be called adultery. Well, these are going to be thrown into great tribulation, so life's not going to be easy for them. And here's, here's the grace opportunity. Again, Jesus just always holding it out. Here's the grace. Here's the opportunity. All you need to, is, to do is repent. Unless they repent, he says, Unless you agree in turn, we talked about that last week. Love that God's always kind of showing us the path and making a way home for us. And Jesus goes on, verse 23, and I will strike her, back to Jezebel. I will strike her children. Not her, not her biological children. We, we did a talk in staff meeting about the unfortunate timing of this message with Mother's Day. Uh, Jezebel and her children, but these are not her biological children. These are her followers. Jesus says, I'm going to strike her followers dead. That's, that's pretty uncomfortable because it's so direct and, and decisive and, and tragic. And, and, and some people might be thinking, like, is God really like that? Yeah, he is. 
We see it repeatedly. This is the last book of 66 books in the Old and New Testaments, and you see it throughout all of these books, how God is trying to get our attention to live for him. That's how severe his discipline and his judgment is. And he says here that, that I'm doing this, I'm saying this, I'm doing this because I want all the churches to know. This book of the Revelation to John was written for all the churches. These seven letters were read to all the churches. 1,900 years later, we are reading this. This is for our church. This is a warning for us. He says, I am he who searches mind and heart. That makes me think again. We looked at it last week of, of, of Hebrews 4.12. That the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He says, I'm he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And I wrote down in my notes, don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. Now, I want to be really careful about what I'm going to say next, and I'm going to stick pretty close to my notes here because I never want to presume upon what God may or may not have done. And um, I may have shared this before, and I only offer it as, uh, please hear my words very carefully, I only offer this as possible evidence that God continues to work in this very way today. Everybody heard that? How cautious I am about this. At my previous church, there were multiple examples of men who had inappropriately opposed the elders over the years and who had, we believe, faced God's discipline. And I want to share just one of these stories. Um, in a church business meeting, this was a congregational church, in a church business meeting, um, a man with a financial background, there were probably a couple hundred people, members there, a man with a financial background, a member of the church, stood and opposed two of the godliest lay leaders um, in that church. And he accused them of facilitating a slush fund on the books. And it was one of the grossest displays I had ever witnessed in a congregational meeting. And the members uh, in the room all understood how absurd the accusation really was. Not two weeks later, after this man had leveled this unfounded accusation about a financial matter to these two lay leaders, not two weeks later, this man's name was in the news, charged with more than 100 counts of tax fraud. Now, because he was a member, because he had a visible um, area of service in the church, the elders attempted to speak with him about the charges, intending to have him step aside from public ministry until his legal issues were settled. But he refused, wouldn't even take their calls, left the church, started attending a new church across town in an attempt to hide and escape discipline. He was unrepentant. He was unrepentant of the accusations against the lay leaders, and he was unrepentant about the issues that he was facing legally. And he was also dead within two months. A man in his 50s, 
with no prior health issues? Now, I don't know. I'll just leave it with you to think about. But I think we need to live in light of God's judgment, not his eternal eschatological at the end of the age judgment. We need to live in light of his judgment now. I think most of us don't take that too seriously at all. I keep coming back to those eyes like a flame of fire and those feet like burnished bronze. And so instead, let's be a church, let's be Christians who are holding fast to what Jesus has entrusted to us. There were some amazing believers in the church at Thyatira, verse 24, who did not hold this teaching, who had not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. They were so evil. There are many false gospels. There are many threats to our faith. And in the midst of that, there always is this remnant in the church who are faithful to the gospel, who hold fast to the true message of Jesus Christ that has been entrusted to us. And Jesus says, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I'm not putting anything new on top of you. I'm not putting anything more on top of you, only that you would live out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This language, not laying any additional burden on them, is very familiar language. In fact, I told you to write down Acts 15 earlier, and that's exactly the passage where this phrase is also spoken in a letter that the leaders wrote to the churches. We don't want to lay any other burden on you. They were dealing with this very issue of navigating an idol-filled world as believers. And we hear that same language here. No greater burden, not adding anything to it, just the gospel. In verse 25, Jesus continues, only hold fast what you have until I come. Be faithful with the mission. Be faithful with the message until you die or until Jesus breaks through the clouds. We're to hold fast the gospel. Everything about our lives is undergirded by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other message. There is no other gospel. There is no other hope. There's no other mission but the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what has been entrusted to every believer in every church in every place for all time. This is the one thing that we all hold in common. It is the gospel that binds us together in mission no matter where we live. Whether we're in Canada, the United States, or across the ocean in Nigeria or in Ukraine, in China today, in South Africa. We hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in all of these places where the commendation comes because our works, as it's stated in verse 19, where our works are characterized by love, faith, service, and patient endurance. These are the ones who are the conquerors that Jesus speaks of in verse 26. To the one who conquers, in this case, in this letter, in this city, to the one who rejects Jezebel, the prophetess, the false prophetess, and her teaching and who instead keeps my works until the end. This one is promised. Notice this. You talk about wanting to be a celebrity, authority, 
over the nations. That's what Jesus is going to give to those who conquer. This is consistent with what we we know about the whole nature of God's now but not yet kingdom. In in, in chapter 1 of Revelation, he, he says he made us into a kingdom. We've been made into a kingdom. The 12 disciples were promised to sit on 12 thrones in eternity to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28. Further, Paul says the saints are said uh, to be the ones to judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. We are given rule with God in eternity. We will be celebrated with him. Verse 27, it says this, he will rule them. He, Christ, with us, the church, will rule them. The word rule there, shepherd. He will shepherd them. He will shepherd Jezebel and her followers and all who reject the gospel. All of the ungodly nations will be shepherded, notice, with a rod of iron. Now listen, shepherd, I know the pictures we have of the shepherd, he always has that like shepherd's crook thing, right? That's what we remember, the shepherd's crook, all the pictures of Jesus, that's what he's holding. The shepherd in the ancient Near East actually carried two carried a rod and a staff, and the staff is most closely connected to the shepherd's crook, and it was used for more gentle leading of the flock, but that rod had a bulbous end, often taken from a root, had a bulbous end. The bulbous end was wrapped in iron. Shepherd carried both of these, and that's the rod that we're seeing right here. This this club, this rod, was meant as an implement of discipline and destruction. And so the shepherd's task, we often think about this, but the shepherd's task is not simply the compassionate, it's not just the compassionate, he's so shepherding. That's what I like about that pastor, he's such a shepherding pastor. Just gathers the little lambs up around him, got his little shepherd's crook. Just leading the little lambs around, so shepherding. We don't think about the shepherd taking the rod and smashing in the skull of a wolf. But that too is the role of a shepherd. That's why when we read in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want you to have both of those because in verse four of Psalm 23, that's when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd's staff ain't going to cut it there because who knows what we're going to meet in the valley of the shadow of death. I want my shepherd to have that rod with that bulbous end wrapped in iron, don't you? So shepherding is both of these. And what we're seeing here is this decisive rod of iron bringing destruction. The violent dispatching of wolves and other predators. But also, on occasion, even the discipline of the sheep. Fanning notes, to care for his flock, the shepherd must at times act harshly toward threats to its safety. And those threats can come internally 
or externally. So the establishment of God's kingdom means this rod of iron is applied. The establishment of God's kingdom means the corresponding elimination of Satan's kingdom in all of its various manifestations. And there is a shattering of Satan's kingdom as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And that authority that Jesus says is from his Father is shared with us. We will receive, verse 28 says, the morning star, the light of Jesus Christ shining for all eternity. So listen up, church. If you have ears, you need to hear this. What the Spirit is saying to the churches. Most importantly, what the Spirit is saying to this church today. The imagery in the latter part of this uh, letter is actually drawn from Psalm 2. And um, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 2. This is the way we're going to uh, conclude this here uh, today. So Psalm 2 is being quoted in Revelation 2 here at the end of this letter. And we're seeing an image here of, um, of the Messianic king. Uh, this psalm was written 1,100 years before the coming of Jesus, before his birth, 1,100 years. And so it speaks prophetically. It speaks uh, messianically into uh, the situation in the first century and the coming of Christ. It establishes Christ as king. The language in the psalm is strong. It's beautiful. It's encouraging for the believer and terrifying for God's enemies. And so follow along as I read this, and then we're going to we're going to close our time in worship. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <clears throat> 